Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Welcome to Happy Path Programming. Um, let's see. Before we get into Trisha Gear, wonderful right. guest for today, uh, we've got Winter Tech Forum coming up in a couple weeks. Two weeks exactly, almost. Yeah. Up here in Crested Butte, where we have lots of snow. And you can still sign up, and you might be able to go to the yurt dinner. It's hard to say, um, but um, we're we've officially released the the uh, the rest of the places, but. Yeah. Um, but you yeah. know, they can make a last minute call. It's a get good up time. Here. It's going to be fun. It's a really good time. Yeah. Um, and also just wanted to mention, I have a couple of books on uh, lean pub. There's atomic Kotlin and there's on Java eight. And there's, I mean, increasingly perhaps poorly chosen title, but uh, people still get a lot out of it. So they're the, there. the on Java eight on the on Java eight one. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Right. And then, uh, and Trisha, welcome. And you have a book. <laughs> Yes, uh, I see. Um, I see your uh, Atomic Kotlin book on Lean Pub a lot because when I'm checking the top ten, yours is in the top ten, and mine's at oh, number thirty-seven. That's really gratifying. <laughs> so, yes, I have a book, Getting to Know IntelliJ Idea, which is also on Lean Pub. It's on Amazon too, but you know, Lean Pub is uh, friendlier. So and yeah, you have a hardcover version. Sorry, I, yeah. So, um, so I, I did it on on Lean Pub because it's a nice platform, self-published, and rah rah. And then when I released it, so I released the first edition, me and Helen actually, released the first edition November before last. And um, and then I, I felt a bit down after it was done. I was like, why do I feel down? It's like, because I can't hold it in my hands. Ah, so yeah. um, then I, I looked into the KDP stuff and so the Kindle Direct Publishing. So you can upload a PDF to Amazon and they'll publish you a paperback and a hardback yeah. if you want to. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, I I feel down after a book because I realize the nice clear meaning of my life just, just suddenly stops. You know, but before <laughs> it's like okay, we are existing to create the book, and yeah. then it goes away. But it is yeah. nice to have the physical thing yes. on the shelf behind you, Definitely. which we're looking at Trisha's yeah. book behind her on on the shelf, yeah. and. Yeah. Bruce has his books behind him right. on the shelf. I, so. I actually paid full price for Head First Java because I helped contribute to Head First Java. And I didn't, my author copies weren't due for ages. So I paid full price so I could Just physically help the book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. No, there's, good. there's, there's some definitely something of, satisfying about that. Yeah. Yeah. So real quick on that book, it goes into, I'm guessing, IntelliJ and how to use it more effectively and what else? What's in yeah, there? so because um, I, I was doing advocacy for IntelliJ at JetBrains for like seven years. So at the end of that, and I, I left a couple of years ago, I'm like, what? I really want to sort of download everything from my brain into something that other people can use. So the book is split into four sections. The first section is kind of bit fluffy in terms of like how IntelliJ thinks, like where you need to be looking inside the IDE to look for the stuff that you care about. The second two sections are all sort of tutorial driven, driven um, like, and I, I use TDD with it as well because I wanted to show this is this is how to get the most out of IntelliJ in terms of like it will do code generation and it will do it will make everything compile and so there's two tutorial sections in the middle and then the fourth section is actually like half the book which is like everything else you need to know about IntelliJ huh. so it goes into depth mm. about like run configurations and about like tips and tricks for debugging and how best to use the testing functionality and I keep thinking about splitting that fourth section out and just having it as a standalone book because it's just got so much useful stuff in there nice yes and, and so you wrote this book even after you left JetBrands we we started it I was trying to remember because like history all blurs into one. Post-pandemic, everything is a big thing. Yeah. Um, so me and Helen started writing it in my what was to become my last year at JetBrains. And then and then I took a sabbatical. And um, like you were saying about the purpose of my life at the in the sabbatical, I had two purposes. One was to help finish Head First Java, which actually came that came to me after I started writing the IntelliJ book. So I, I knew I couldn't have a full-time job and write two books at the same time. It's clearly <laughs> not, not going to happen. Yeah. So I had like three months of finish head first Java. And in some ways, I mean, that was a crazy time, but in some ways I sort of miss it because I'd be like, right, get up, get the kids to school, sit down and write the book and keep writing <laughs> mm -hmm. the book. 
Um, and then when that was done, then I went back in and spent another like six months on the IntelliJ Idea book. And I was like, nice. we've got to get this out the door because we spent two years on it now. And it was supposed yeah. to be an easy thing that we can just quickly. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I need a sabbatical so we can finish the effect on your programming book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The siren song of the easy book. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Never turns out that way. I think I might pick a hard book. I was having a conversation with Brian Getz at DevOps about how do you feel about updating Java concurrency? Was it modern Java concurrency? Uh And and that's a hard book. Like I I don't think that's something you can just get out the door. (laughs) Well, plus the, all the work that they've done on, um, it's a lot that's Loom. changed. Oh exactly. yeah, Loom has changed everything. So yeah. I think, yeah, yeah, I think you just want to write a new book, which would be yeah. really hard. Yeah, yeah. I no, I'm sure. And what did he say? No, no way He's on like, earth. He, no, I mean he was. He always. I was asking him because he always said, "When Loom comes out, I'll consider it." Consider um, it. And so then he was sort of saying, "I don't know if this is under like you know." conference dinner non-disclosure but he was sort of saying the same thing that you just said you can't really update the book and just like plonk loom on the end of it yeah um so it's a full rethink he was considering having a part two book so not a second Mm. edition but like modern modern java exactly like (laughs) the first book is still valid all of that none of that goes away it's just that that's not the first thing you're going to think about anymore. Like how do we use fork join and you're going to use the um, executors pool and, and loom and, and things like uh, concurrent data structures and all the stuff that's kind of come in since I think that, I think his book was what Java five, Java six. So there's, there's a lot to cover since then. Yeah. Yeah. Not just a refactor. No, (laughs) I would say, I mean, if it was me, I would go, New book, you could draw from the material in there, but just make it a new book. That's yeah. what I would do if you're listening, Brian. <laughs> just my opinion. <laughs> well, and maybe uh, eventually you'll have a fleet version of your IntelliJ book, and it'd be interesting to see. Can you just do a refactor, or is that a, a full rewrite? <laughs> yeah, I mean, fleet and some of the other options there, I gotta say, I'm an old fashioned programmer. I'm like, I spent a long time learning IntelliJ. Like, I'm gonna keep using IntelliJ. Oh, yeah. And, Once you invest a lot of time in something like that. Yeah. Once you and get to know I, your tools, it's hard to change them. Is It is. It is hard. And Helen is still working at JetBrains, and she's more of a, a, a sort of broad knowledge person. So she's dipping in and out of the IDEs. So I was sort of hoping that maybe she might tell me what's different in the IDEs. But I'm not going to spend 15 years learning Fleet so that I can do a Fleet book as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I've tried it. A, a couple of times and my initial reaction has always been oh well this isn't i mean this isn't as responsive as vs code yet so right. interesting i'm yeah i'm not uh huh. not which which i yeah. think is what they're trying to compete with right with fleet pretty sure yes yeah, basically yeah. The, the thought that i have when i use fleet is oh this isn't for me not because it's uh, bad but it's just i'm not the sort of programmer they're targeting and I think that yeah, some of that's how I feel in. when I use VS Code. It's right. like, yeah, right. it's similar. So I'm, yeah, I don't know. I'm still, I mean, I use both um, VS Code and IntelliJ, but more, I don't know, most of the time it's like, it's the little things. I find it's those little hurdles. And this is, you know, developer productivity is one of your things. So we can, we can work into that. But those little hurdles are what get me. And starting up IntelliJ, and getting into that mindset versus just bringing up VS Code, mm. most of the time it's, I'll just use VS Code, and then I learn it. I learn more and more about it in the process. But it's that it's huh. almost just the startup time that, huh. that gets me. Yeah, and the and also the simplicity. It isn't like got this huge surface yeah. area. Yeah, mm-hmm. and small, uh, and I've discovered this area. in an, in a bunch of things. Is the is the it's the little hurdles that get you. Huh. And maybe we can move into the idea of test-driven development and testing right. in general, because uh, that's a that's a big thing for you. Because I just recently, in the last few days, came across an article in my newsfeed where the guy was talking about um, I don't remember. It was basically the things that didn't work in test-driven development. Because a lot of times TDD is something that people will go, "Oh, well, you have to use TDD everywhere." Right. And um, and he's pointing out that, well, uh, a lot of times 
like if you're doing exploratory programming, you don't know. If you're doing, uh, if you're just trying to solve a specific problem, the test is really, is the problem solved or not? And so you don't necessarily build a whole bunch of tests and you certainly don't do the test first thing. And it's like, there's this kind of narrow area where you go, oh, we have the complete specification. We can start by writing the tests for that specification that fail. And then, you know, but, but that's like not that big of a... It's know, not holistic of, yeah. of like all the different things that you're doing in the activity of programming. Yeah, because so much of the time you don't have that uh, full specification. Yeah. And if you do, sure, I can see why you'd use Wouldn't TDD. the counter argument to that be that, well, you should probably go build that specification before you start writing code? Um, I, I guess, but, it, but, but if it's, you know, if I'm just, well, certainly if I'm exploring, I don't know what that specification would look like. I'm yeah. just trying to figure out, is it possible to do this thing? Or yeah. do I want to do this thing or whatever? So what do you think about this? I, I mean, it's, everything's about gray areas, isn't it, right? And mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of TDD. Um, I tend to write my tests first. Even when I so when I used to interview people for a position where we had to, had to have TDD as part of the job, people would say, um, yeah, I write my tests first except when I don't know what I'm doing and then I write the code first. And I'm a bit like, yeah, but if you don't know what you're doing, why are you writing the production code? <laughs> Part of the thing about the tests is to write down the things that you don't know. Like um, even if it's just the title of the tests, you know, what should it do if the connection fails? What should it do if the user gives you some garbage input? What should it do if, um, I don't know, if you don't know what you're doing? So I quite often use the test to make a note of all those things that I don't know and um, and then kind of use that to drive the solution. Um, mm -hmm. But it does depend a little bit on the, the application you're working on and how it's architectured, architected and like also what sorts of tests you're writing. So when I worked at LMAX, we wrote a whole bunch of automated acceptance tests. So you can be quite high level in terms of the behavior the user expects. And we wrote the unit tests too. When you're doing the unit test, you're going to be more precise about like it is definitely going to do these things when you do these sorts of things. And on the acceptance test level, you can write these automated tests, which are like, well, you know, it should definitely give me some sort of error if I do something stupid. Um, mm. And but if you don't have those different levels of testing in a unit test where your unit tests are like one test, one class, it's very difficult to write that general. Well, I want it to do something definitely wrong when this weird stuff happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's like a spectrum with testing where uh, I don't often write a lot of unit tests because a lot of the stuff that I'm building is really about integration and it's the integration points that are brittle and can fail or be flaky. And so those are the places where I often start is like, like what, how should the integration work? And so it's uh, maybe a little unfortunate in some cases that I, I can't break that down into a unit test that has much value but really what i care about is like is this integration working as i expect it to um but then that makes my tests slower right. because they're integration tests and you know the system that i'm relying on maybe needs a bunch of setup in order to have a valid test and so yeah it gets my it gets husband writes a lot of um, android stuff and so and he so he and i both worked at the same place in london when we worked with dave farley with these acceptance tests and stuff and so he wants to test drive a lot of stuff the same way that that we did there but he does find it it's it's a very different beast when you're working with android because you can't just fire up a quick unit test that does the thing that you want but what he has found is that he often writes these integration tests or emulator level tests because you can think that way in terms of the overall flow. But then afterwards, he will sometimes refactor those down to unit tests and be like, oh, you know what? I don't need the emulator for this. I'm actually only testing this part mm. of the view or whatever. Yeah. But again, it yeah, depends I guess that's on... One one way that I often do is I'll start with the integration test and then I realize in trying to fulfill the integration test that, oh, there's actually a few places that I can break down into to being unit tests. And and so, but I guess I, I'm almost in my TDD and a lot of the stuff I build, I'm an integration test first 
kind of approach and then and then identifying the places that could be unit tests but yeah because it it seems like that's not driven i guess that's the the problem that i have when people are very rigid about oh you always have to write the tests before you write any code and i have discovered that um when you're you know, at some point, well, it's almost like when you're you're writing a book, you write an example, and then you start writing the prose, and it changes, or at least in my experience, it often changes the example. You go, right. oh, wait, you, you know, you're sort of rubber ducking the example yeah. down on the thing. And so for me, testing will often do that. And you go, like, even just to make something testable, you go, oh, yeah, that would change the design of it. But that mm -hmm. isn't up front. And I think maybe my problem isn't it's the the driven part, the oh, you have to get this test first. Yeah. yeah. And then fill in the you know, connect the dots yeah. afterwards. I think and, for me the key thing is is to be able to switch between the two. And like mm -hmm. rapidly. Because you can't just mm -hmm. write three hundred tests with no implementation and then write the implementation and expect everything to pass. Like whether, yeah. whether you write the implementation and go, oh, now I know what the test is supposed to look like or whether mm -hmm. it, it's about going backwards and forwards. Because the other thing is that one of the, I went from this place I was working with Dave Farley, I, I started working at MongoDB. So I was trying to do test-driven stuff there. The, the pattern that they had been using is that, because we were working on the Java driver. So we had a specification on how the Java driver was going to talk to the database. So a lot of the design was sort of driven from the database, like upwards, if you like, mm. um, which kind of makes sense because you have a specification on how to talk to the database. And so you kind of, you're sort of exposing that to the end user. And the end user is a Java developer who's trying to talk to MongoDB. But when you start thinking test first and you start thinking from the outside in, you start to realize that the API makes no sense when you're <laughs> exposing what the database cares about. Right. And when I'm a developer, I don't really care about whatever it is the database cares about. I want an insert statement, which is going to take the thing I'm inserting and maybe some yeah. criteria. And in Java syntax, I would expect it to look like this. And so I sometimes find test-driven development that's why I learned that test-driven development is very good for API design because then you're starting to think from the outside, what makes sense? What shape should it be? Instead of doing what we often do as developers and go, here's what you've got. Like, just yeah. do your best with this, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. This is what this is what makes sense based on the system that I'm uh, abstracting over when what the other way is to think, okay, this is what the developer actually wants from their right. API. Right. And I think the biggest thing that I've come away with is when you do the testing and you go, oh, wait, this doesn't make sense. I need to change the API to make it testable. It often or almost always improves the API in that process. Right. Mm -hmm. So that, that hand in hand approach is just really essential I think yeah I think as long as you're doing both at the same time and evolving mm -hmm. in both directions because if right. you if you write your production code and then don't write any tests well a that's bad and b when you come to it six months later and go oh it doesn't really work and I need some tests and you're too scared to touch the production code to make it testable because you can't mm -hmm. remember what it does or why it works right. that way or yeah. which assumptions you made and it's just difficult to do it afterwards mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's an important point that you brought up around how I think TDD is in some ways presented as this idea that you mentioned of like, write your tests and then switch over to your production code and then get all only in production code, get all of your tests to pass. Right. And I think in reality, it is this there, you've got this inner loop where you're going back and forth between your test code and your production code, and you're modifying them both at some point. And, and that is, I think, I think not generally the way that TDD is presented as the way as the the way that you should do it, but the reality to be I think uh, productive is that you kind of do have to be going back and forth adapting things. Um, I feel like w when uh, Luciano introduced it, that's the way he did it. He goes, "Okay, what do you want to do? All right, first write the test for that. Okay, now implement the code." And it was just one thing at a time, yeah. and that that did make more sense to me, but often I go, well, I'm not sure what I want to do at this point. I, I don't know what's possible or whatever, so, but that's just me. There's, mostly. I think a, a third piece to this that I often do is, is 
think about the data model and the functions around that data model is almost like a separate thing. Like I've got the functionality, but then I've got the data model Mm. and functions, and then I've got the tests. And a lot of times I start with my data model first, because to even write a useful test, I have to have the actual objects defined. But then when I define like a function, I in Kotlin use to do or in Scala use triple question mark as being like, all right, my test is going to blow up when I actually try to call this function. And mm-hmm. that gives me the the name that I can reference, but then but then allows me to write the test against that function that is not yet implemented. I guess in mm-hmm. Java you could throw not implemented exception mm-hmm. or something as well. But the triple question mark in Scala right. to do in, in Kotlin's pretty nice for doing that so i kind of like build out the data model and the functions but then there's that like circular loop between all three of those different pieces to actually kind of get to where i want to go right right um is this a segue that we could go into i want to talk about um flaky tests oh flaky tests right because that's a thing (laughs) (laughs) okay tell us about flaky tests yeah what's uh I mean, everyone has flaky tests. Like if you're doing any kind of like, especially integrations, is it only like, would you only usually get a flaky test on an integration test or does this happen? I mean, I think you probably, you're going to find flaky tests more frequently on um, when you've got independent systems or messaging or integrations or like, yes, anything. I I mean, you can wait. Can you define flaky tests? The easiest definition of a flaky test is you run a test and it fails and you run it straight afterwards on the same hardware, the same JVM, the same everything else, and it passes. So it's a non-pure functional test. It's a non-deterministic result. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. And so, you know, and obviously there's different different variations in that it mostly passes, but every now and again it fails versus, you know, pass, fails, pass, fails, pass, fails. But the, ultimately, if you can run it under the same circumstances and sometimes it passes and sometimes it fails, it's flaky. Yeah. And okay. so for me, these are challenging because yeah. you then get your CI system that that is flaky. Like the, the flakiness then propagates mm-hmm. to, to right. uh, cause you a lot of challenges in keeping that uh, that that main branch green or whatever. And how do you my, solve this my, problem? My, well, yeah, well, there's lots of, so well, yes, I'll come to that. My main problem with flaky tests is that even if you have one flaky test in your whole test suite, you stop trusting your tests because mm-hmm. you're like, you already know sometimes it passes. And so you start rerunning things, whether you rerun it like locally mm-hmm. or whether you get your CI to rerun things, this becomes inefficient, use more resources, ultimately more money. But from and what a, does it mean uh, to pass a test, your test right. suite, when one of them's flaky? What does that yeah, mean? Yeah, and you, you can't trust it. You suddenly, mm-hmm. You've invested all this time writing tests, whether you did TDD or whatever you did. You've, you've written tests. You have tests. But they are not doing the job they're supposed to do because you don't have the confidence that that the tests are doing what they say they're doing. And you don't have the confidence that your production code is working properly. Because if your test fails, sometimes you're like, is then it your production the test system probably fails it, sometimes. Is it the code? Is it my CI infrastructure? Like, what, what is it? So this, and if I can't trust my tests, why write them? Hmm. Well, so here's the thing is that I have an argument. My first argument for what to do about flaky tests is delete them. Just like, just delete it. Because I really do think that they cause more pain than any kind of security you get from that test. Because every time it passes, you're still not Kind of tricked into believing that it actually works. Right. And so I think they're toxic. I think that they lead to this lack of faith in your test suite and not to mention the cost, the time cost and, and all the rest of it. So my first answer would be delete them. But um, obviously you should try and fix them. And there's a bunch of different ways to fix them. So Dave Farley has a good video on this. He talks about the five causes of intermittent uh, intermittent tests. And so there's things like you know infrastructure changes that can happen underneath you especially if it's a ci environment talks about things like versioning so you know you run it in one environment um and and it's fine but in another environment it's not fine but you you haven't versioned in your code like i expect it to be using this service this version of the service or i expect it to be using this version of java or whatever so Obviously, from Dave's sort of continuous delivery point of view, his whole thing is like everything should be codified. You can't just rely on it's probably there and it's probably what I expect. So yeah. that's 
that's another thing. And then, of course, there's a lot of things about asynchronousness and messaging and weights and timeouts and race conditions and that kind of thing. When I worked with David at LMAX, there was, um, we had a bunch of flaky tests. They were mostly timeout based stuff because we were using asynchronous messaging. But it turns out that one subset of failing tests were failing for production reasons. There was actually a race condition in the production code. And mm. the only way we found it is because we we hammered it with a bunch of acceptance tests um, every 40 minutes. And that would bring in this this race condition in a, in a subset of the tests. So the flaky test could be indicating to you that you've got a deeper problem, um, like like a race condition that only surfaces given you know some particular uh, yeah. state of the when system. When you're using concurrency, flaky <laughs> yeah. tests are yeah. So would it make sense to uh, have a suite, a separate suite of flaky tests? So you have your your tests that always should work, and then your flaky tests that you run when you're looking for deeper problems so so one of the approaches i was talking so one of the huh, right i've got so many things to say <laughs> um working at gradle we have a product called develocity which does identify your flaky tests for you so when a test fails it reruns it and then if it's if it fails and passes in the same set then it, it flags it as flaky so you you get to see your flaky test so that's a great thing some visibility of a flaky test is a good thing um so then i was discussing with my fellow developer advocates like what do we do about flaky tests do we just are from a developer advocacy point of view is our message you have to fix your flaky tests because they're they're noise and all the rest of it and, and we realized of course there is a subset of tests which will by definition be flaky things mm. like well flaky not always give you the the result that you expect so for example one set of tests that we were running uh, at this place were effectively smoke tests against third party libraries and uh, third party systems and things and they can fall into different categories. One is, you know, their test system is down, so like the tests are going to fail. Another is they've changed the version. You kind of want your test to fail if they change something and your test expects one thing and gets something else back. And yeah. another is, you know, just integration is a point of potential failure. You can't, you can't time out. Your timeout can't be infinite. Sometimes stuff goes down. So, yes, anything which the test is valuable but there is a non-zero chance that the test might fail for probably infrastructural reasons, then you want to run those probably separately um, so that they're not part of your, whatever you call your, you know, your acceptance testing, commit build, whatever it is. Um, yeah. So then you can see, so you should have a set of tests, your unit tests and even end-to-end -end tests, which you can rely on so that the whole thing can go green like all the time in theory. And then anything which is like, well, we just want to make sure it's probably not really stupid can be a little bit off to one side. So that's one thing. It's part of the underlying challenge here that we typically have a red-green approach to test passing. And there are cases where maybe we it would be better to... Uh, to think about it in terms of a risk level or a like probability level or like like hey you know we're at a 98% uh, confidence that like the system is is, is good and you you know that rather than always saying you're either at 0% or 100% um, is is kind of the red green approach yeah or you're probably right because if you think about performance tests and there's usually some hard line on a performance test. So we had um, performance requirements of a latency of under 10 milliseconds or whatever it was. So, you know, you really you want your performance test to be under that. But um, but it's not you can still argue it's red and green, but it's it is on a on a scale. So like you want to be able to see when you're getting to like nine milliseconds, you should probably do something about that and bring mm -hmm. it back down again. Right. So it's not just a case of it's fine or it's not fine. It's like it's fine or it's not. It's kind of fine or it's really going to get to be not fine quite yeah. soon. And I think that's I mean, we live in a world where there's it's not red and green. It's not black and white. You know, <laughs> exactly. Everything's on a bit of a scale. You know, it yeah. depends, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're we don't ship perfect software to production like we we know that our software is not perfect so what level of imperfection are we okay with and still right. shipping mm -hmm. and and maybe a, a future improvement to ci systems would be able to say um like how flaky how much flakiness do you want to allow to consider this you know green or or able to be merged or yeah the binary 
you should also be able to flag like I expect this to be flaky sometimes versus mm-hmm. I do not expect this to be flaky. Right. I yes. don't expect Expected when I'm running through my services under my control for them to not speak to each other or, or whatever it is. Right. I think the binary idea goes unfortunately filters up into management as well. You know, when we had this idea of test coverage, which hopefully is going away, um, you know, the managers would would go, well, of course we want 100% test coverage. And then we had to go, oh, this was a bad idea. We need to, <laughs> we need to change this uh, model. And but yeah. it was measurable. So what you, you can't, can't measure, manage, it, you can't, you can't manage, manage what yeah. you can't measure. Yeah. That's, that's what they say in business that's school. That's what they say. So, so <laughs> right. So we got to have, we got to have measures. And if we're going to measure it, then if I'm going to get a promotion, then it's got to be 100%. Oh, that's that's right. this comes back down to the book writing it's like 80% complete for like two years (laughs) 20% which is really hard the last yeah the last few percent are the ones that's hard to get out of um so different approaches to dealing with flaky tests um maybe the the uber point is that you you should put some thought into how you're dealing with and how you're classifying flaky tests and there's different approaches that you can take. You can do retries um, as part of that. Uh, in my in the GRPC Kotlin project that I maintain, we have a flaky test and I have no idea why it's flaky. Um, <laughs> I've not been able to figure that out. And so there's a cool uh, Gradle um, module, a Gradle plugin that, that I use that just like retries the whole test suite multiple times. And it's kind of a, a brute force uh, approach, but ultimately, you know, the, the I get a green build and, and uh, <laughs> that feels good. Um, but hmm. so retries at, at some granularity is, is probably one strategy that you can take. Um, but then you, I think you mentioned a few other possible approaches that you could take and maybe something that the great old the velocity <laughs> tooling <laughs> like helps with. So De- velocity uses the retries thing from, um, Gradle, but also from Maven to be like, uh, to flag it as flaky. So at least you're, you're going one step further than, I retried it. It went green, so it's all good. <laughs> You're going. I retried it. It went green, but hey, I don't think yeah. that's right. So yeah. Devilosity kind of flags that, and it shows you like these. These are how many flaky tests you had in this build, and you can look at it over time. So you can see your most flaky tests, which is really helpful. Yeah. The other thing that came into a more recent version of Devilosity is the way that I've done flaky test detection in the past, which is from build to build given that things haven't changed, this test tends to go red, green, red, green, red, green. So it's probably flaky. And so then you can prioritize them. And then this allows you to actually do something about your flaky test. Because when I go to conferences and I ask people, do you have flaky tests? Some people say, I don't know. And that worries (laughs) me very deeply. (laughs) Because I know that when we work on very complex systems, which most of us are working on complex systems these days, our CI system is like, not, I'm not going to say it's red all the time. I'm going to say, you know, it's red sometimes and it's green sometimes. And, you know, I don't really know what is the real state the of cost? my tests yeah. Yeah. in CI because, like like you say, is, are they 90% passing or 1% passing? Because it went red and I'm not really sure what that means. Yeah. And with some at least some visibility over the flaky tests, we know, well, this goes red 20% of the time because of flaky tests. And maybe you can put them into a different part of the build, or we talk about quarantining them. I've worked in a place where you put an annotation on them, which says ignore until. So you give yourself like two weeks oh, to kind cool. of like fix it. And then yeah. in two weeks time, if you haven't fixed it, it starts then fading. The test does, oh, that's a cool approach. That is cool. Yes. Is this part of Devilocity? No, this that's... was when I worked with Dave Farley and we had like, we used a JUnit annotation to, oh, or we placed yeah. our own annotation. So the JUnit um, annotation like gives you a time box to, that you can ignore the, the, the flakiness for, huh. and then, and then the tests start absolutely yeah, failing it after run that. it test for a while. And then when the date goes past, it starts running it again. And, um, and then if it fails, cause you forgot to do anything about it, you're like, oh yeah, I really need to get on that thing. It's uh. a good point because since I added the retry to GRPC Kotlin, I have totally forgotten that I should at some point investigate that I have a flaky test, you know, and now it's just like, Oh, the build is green all, and all the time. And so, you know, bug fixed when, yeah. when in reality, the bug is not fixed. And and that's, so that's one of the things we talk about from, from Gradle as well. And the Gradle developers do this, they schedule flaky test days so that instead of working on, you know, production code or whatever, today is a flaky test day. So we're going to use Devilocity. We're going to rank our tests by something. It might be most flaky or it might be, 
um, the ones that get run the most or whatever it is by some metric and then just go, go right, that's the one I'm... You have some information to, to guide you to what is, should be a higher priority than, than yeah. other things. Yeah. And you can see things like if it's obviously if it started becoming flaky in the last week, then that allows you to drill in, oh, what was that commit? What did we do? Or did we change something in CI in that time? So you have more metrics to kind of dive in and, and try and troubleshoot cool. the problem. Awesome. So what does Develocity do? So Develocity is, I'm not sure we've got a succinct way of describing this at the moment. It is a developer productivity tool. Um, you, uh, It's on-prem, it's installed on-prem at, at organizations, and it allows you to do a number of different things. One, it helps speed up your build. So it provides things like build caching for Maven and Gradle. So and Maven doesn't generally have a, a there is an open source build cache, but Develocity has a better one i have to say that uh, i don't know what the difference is but there's a build cache so it allows you to to cache the output of various builds so you don't always have to rerun builds so you get faster builds so devilosity provides acceleration technologies but it also provides analytics like flaky tests build failures and what i think is really interesting about this is it provides it not just for ci but for your local builds too oh, so in oh. one dashboard i get to see this test, which passes all the time on CI, is very flaky locally, and it might be a resources thing, or it might be a configuration thing, or, or whatever. Or I can see if one of my tests fails in my build, and I go to Develocity and look at the history, I can see, oh, this fails a whole bunch for like these people on my team, and so I'm going to speak to those people about how they fixed it. So it pulls together all these stats from from your builds, like local builds and CI builds, and allows you to actually start using that information to make improvements. So my experience of builds, be it Gradle or Maven or whatever, or Ant or whatever, is that someone creates the build, and then we all tentatively touch it from time to time, (laughs) and we try not to break it, and then we just kind of live with it um, and accept it as it is. And Devilocity says, like, because... It's come out of the experience that the Gradle folks have had doing consulting for companies that that run Gradle. Like, here's all the things that you can do to improve your build. This is how you can improve the performance. This is how you can improve, like, parallelization. This is, you need visibility over these sorts of things. Um, And it kind of says, like, you shouldn't accept the build as a static thing. It's kind of living code the same way our code is. And if we could actually just look at it, inspect it, get some analytics um, and provide some tools for things like acceleration, then it doesn't have to be this annoying thing that everyone's scared of touching that slows us down. Um, This is something that's actually can help aid our productivity. So in production systems, we have observability and ops. And it sounds like this tool is essentially like ops and observability for builds. Right, exactly. And so... I read something in um, in Release It, the second edition of Release It, and he says um, he says that we should be treating our development machines and our QA environment like the production environment mm-hmm. because it's our environment for producing the code that goes into production. And yet, actually, we quite often just ignore this or have like crappy QA environments or like cheap laptops for developers. Um, we don't clean stuff up after ourselves. You know, we're just trying to get by Um, and so things like Develocity are kind of step in the direction it's it's a step towards developer productivity and DevX and and platform engineering and those kinds of things of like let's take this area seriously our development environments are important our testing environments are important staging CI all of those things should be monitored the same way that we would with a production environment and Mm -hmm. We should be investing time in improving those things rather than just going, well, you know, the build takes 10 minutes and it is what it is. Right. Well, but those things are not what the customer's paying for. The customer's paying for that code that we're working on. So those things are secondary. And, but that's why Develocity is kind developers of interesting. Are free. Because... And developers are free. Yeah. <laughs> Develocity is interesting because then you, you've got statistics. So you can say, let's say you've got a 10 minute build time for everyone on the team when they build locally. Now you have stats for how long the build takes, how frequently your developers run that build. And then all, all you have to do is times that by your average developer salary and figure out, oh my God, we are losing so much money just because mm-hmm. we haven't invested a couple of days in figuring out how to reduce our build time. 
But right. this can backfire and make developers unhappy because then when are they going to go out and sword fight in the hallway? You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's KC. Yeah. I, I was actually going to do a video about that. I was going to do a video about like why, when developers don't want to improve their productivity. Ah, um, actually, that could be very funny. Yeah, because I mean, I've worked in. I need these like build. That, I need but... these long builds so I have time to look at Twitter. Right. Uh, exactly. I need to, or I need to. I don't know. Go out for a smoke or whatever it is that people yeah. do. Yeah. Um, we used to actually. So here's a story that's going to go in that video, I hope. When I used to work at a big investment bank in London, um, we had three-hour release times. And so, and we would have to kick off the release end of day, 6 p.m. This is clearly when I didn't have children or a family or a life, actually. <laughs> so we would do these releases. This is released to QA, by the way. And we would have to do this like every week for, you know, a three-month period while we're going through the testing phase. So we would like kick off the release process, which is starts off with like database migration or whatever it is. We go downstairs to the pub. We have enough time for a drink each. We come upstairs. We kick off the next process, go downstairs for another drink, <laughs> come back upstairs. And because I'm not going to sit in an empty office, it was me and my colleague. I'm not going to sit there in an empty office for three hours staring at a progress bar. Right. Um, and so we did talk about uh, we did talk about improving that build process. And, you know, there's a lot of pushback, the normal stuff of, oh, you can't automate this because what happens when it goes wrong? It's like it's literally 12 pages of scripted things to do. That seems like something we should be able to automate, right? right. And then we could actually, like, kick that off and go to the pub for three drinks in a row and then come back. <laughs> I have to go back and forth. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, nice. so there's times when we don't necessarily want to improve our productivity. Similar sorts of organizations where if as developers we don't really feel valued and we do feel like we're, we're measured by the amount of time we sit on the chair and in front of the computer – why would I want to be more effective and more productive during that time when you're literally just measuring bum time on, on the seat? I can kind of, I would quite happily manually run this script and manually copy this from here to here because I'm filling my time with something useful yeah. instead of optimizing it so I can do something else. Why? It feels like there are fairly easy, straightforward ways to improve developer productivity. And yet it seems like generally organizations do not invest in improving productivity. Just as like a silly example, I think a lot of, especially enterprise developers work on really crappy machines Ooh. and organizations could spend a few thousand dollars per developer, get them good machines that actually like aren't super slow and always running out of memory and whatever, but they don't. And I think because of accounting. Yeah. Yeah. But like, like, why, why has it been so hard to convince organizations that developer productivity is worth it? <laughs> it's worth investing in. I don't really know the. Oh, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I do know the laptops is a good one. I, I worked at a, another investment bank in London where I went there. It's when I was working at ThoughtWorks, and I went there with my ThoughtWorks Mac, and um, and then the bank gave me this. They're things. like, here's your here's your uh, laptop from 1982 <laughs> that you can use to build the software with. And, and I was like, don't hurt your back picking it up. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm like, this is not portable. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and what do you expect me to do with this thing? It takes, um, and I could measure it compared to the Mac. And my it was a MacBook Air. It wasn't like some super powered Mac, but the MacBook Air would run things four times faster at <laughs> least than this brick, right? Yeah. And so here's an interesting thing, and I, this is something I've been finding with Devilocity is that. One of the problems is that um, I don't want to blame developers, but as developers, we've been told that we don't have any power over this and we are kind of at the mercy of accounting. But once you start collecting some statistics, like with Devilocity, we saw that we, we collected statistics of things like build times. So you could we, we've done this study where build times for one organization, I can't remember what the overall build time was, but let's say it's 20 minutes because it's not unusual. Um, and you build it even on an on an M1 Mac, and then you build it on an M2 Mac, and it takes like half the time. And then they did the calculation of time versus developer salary, um, and like how long will this pay itself off? Like if we buy everyone an M2 Mac, like how long will it take to pay that off? Like like six weeks or less, right. you know, yeah. some crazy because. 
we're, we're measuring for all the wrong things. And if you can measure things, if you can find things to measure, which impact our productivity, which is why build times is kind of an interesting one, because you can measure that. Yeah. And then start putting financial numbers on this. Then someone else goes, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of money. We should probably do something about that. So Rather speak than in, in the past, terms. Developers have been like, my build is slow. And accounting goes, okay. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right. We don't know what to do with that. Yeah. yeah. So so you're saying, okay, acknowledge the, that the accountants are running things and just speak in their language, hmm. which is, I'd say, step one. But step two would be maybe we should put decision making, some decisions should be made not just by the accountants. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I've been finding, I've been speaking to some potential customers of Velocity, and some of the effective ways of getting, of making changes for developer productivity is sort of sandwich approach. So someone at like maybe C-level or certainly some sort of like senior engineering level decides um, developer productivity is important. Our developers are expensive. They're one of our most expensive resources Let's get the most out of them, not like squeezing lines of code out of them, but like let's enable them to be good at their job. This is this is a, an important thing for this company. So someone at the top level says that and the developers go, great, this is definitely something that I want. I don't want to be wasting time waiting for staff or struggling with a terrible laptop or waiting for CIQ times, which are like 90 minutes till my build gets in there. So if you have the top level and the developer level, you can kind of effectively squeeze in towards middle management and push in both directions to affect the kind of change. Because often you find at the, at the mid-level there's a lot of competing different objectives for competing different managers. And a lot of them are just obviously trying to push out features and not thinking about like developer productivity. So if you can target it from the top level and the bottom at the same time, then you can really start to affect change. Well, I'm seeing the future as, well, we have, we have human limitations in all of these things. You know, the accountants see it from their viewpoint, the CEOs see it from whatever they're, and I'm thinking, we are going to eventually replace the C-suite with AI and they can see every, that'll see everything. And it won't be these little siloed bits of knowledge that are limited by what that person has been exposed to. And companies are just going to run so much better. But don't you think, so yes, I would love that. But <laughs> mm -hmm. I also feel like, and AI is exactly the same as a human being. Like it's, it learns based on the weights you give to certain objectives, right? Mm. So the AI is still going to optimize for something. Or well, what are they going to optimize for? It is, but I'll say the difference is the human being can hold, you know, whatever, you know, five. Can easily ignore information. Well, right. easily ignore information and can only hold whatever five to seven things in its mind at one time. So their equation is extremely limited, whereas the AI mm. can hold the all of these factors. Mm. And that's the difference. Yeah. It's true. And and for the AI, uh, let's say, let let's like... Yeah. So the AI, if you had multiple AIs at the C level, instead of them having mm -hmm. to have a whole bunch of meetings all the time to sync, they're just kind mm -hmm. of like sending messages to each other and to no update the status. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know that you you would have all these little sides. No, 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 anymore. exactly. It would just be it would just be going, Oh, look, the developers are are having trouble here. We can we need to fix that so the whole company moves yeah. better. And it isn't a, ma a matter of well, I don't understand what long build times are. Right. You know, the AI would know that, and it would go, "How can we improve all of these things at once?" So one one idea to run by you, um, we we talk about developer productivity, and we had a podcast a while back around kind of the developer happiness, mm. like mm. like the one piece of developer productivity is like do do developers get fulfillment and enjoyment out of their their flow and being able to be in flow state but then there is the accounting side at least pre-ai and the accounting side i think when you when we say developer productivity accounting doesn't care but right. if we said developer efficiency like if we put it into to the efficiency terminology then there is something that maybe we could and maybe with the velocity we could actually have reports that illustrate like oh you know here's ways that we could actually make developers more efficient um with 
yeah, I don't know. It seems like maybe by classifying everything as developer productivity, we're not actually accomplishing the goals that the developer mm. wants, and we're not accomplishing the goals that the business wants. It's like we've kind of framed the whole thing wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I yes. I liked what you said about developer happiness because to me the reason why I'm really excited about developer productivity is not because I want developers to ship more lines of code or even put more features in the hands of users, but because, like you said, like when I'm in the flow state, I'm happy. When I'm like when I don't have to fight with my laptop or I don't have to wait for a million years for CI to give me the answer that I want, then I'm happy and I'm creative. And so. Yeah. For me, developer productivity equals happiness. But then we also mm-hmm. saw the McKinsey report, which was like developer productivity is who to fire because they're not productive, which is not <laughs> what we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so there's all these different different kind of lenses to look at it through. We've kind of lumped them all under developer productivity, and maybe that's part of the challenge is that we should break it down into more um, the more important things, which, which for us developers is, yes, I want to be in the flow state more. That is <laughs> that makes a fascinating thing. I mean, the McKinsey report that you just brought up is like, oh yeah, you can take this information and you filter it through your lens, which is, oh, well, if they're not productive, get rid of them and get somebody in who that's the solution. Whereas the other solution would be, well, in all the layoffs that we're seeing now, I look at that and I'm going, so you spent all this energy finding these people. And then as soon as a number flips in the wrong direction or somebody incentivizes you in a different way, you go, oh yeah, we'll just throw them away. You're going, that's so much. The question wasn't, how can we make them more productive? It was... Well, how do we? Yeah, well, I mean, we're a publicly held corporation. Our obligation is to maximize shareholder uh, profits. So so that's what we do. And, you know, and you're looking at it, you're going, yeah, but in the big picture, that's not maximizing shareholder profits. It's so dumb, isn't it? You just know, like you say, all that talent goes away. All the goodwill from the developer community <laughs> kind of you lose a lot of that. And mm-hmm. um, and the productivity goes down. All the people who are left behind are demoralized, doing twice as much work. And um, and they're they're scared. They're scared they're going to be let go as well. So yeah. in the in the not very long term, in the, within twelve months, it's already a losing policy. Oh right. Well, and that's the thing: the inability of the sea level to look at the big picture. They 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 are they are limited in their view, and you know again I'm I'm, you know I'm advocating I advocating for smarter systems, and that would be, let's let the machines do it once they get better enough. I think we will. I think I mean in my opinion the um, the VCs are probably going to start doing this. They're going to go well if we can increase our our hit rate, let's put let's put the machines you know, managing things because then our, we're going to make more money. So Trisha, what do you do when a customer, potential customer of DeVelocity comes to you and says, can you give me a report of my lowest performing developers? <laughs> I actually, the I had a conversation with the CEO about this this week because we're talking about how to talk about DeVelocity in the context of um uh, space metrics and uh, space and Dora and those sorts of things. And the, the CEO was quite clear. He was like, we will not use Devilocity metrics for individual performance. We fundamentally oh. don't agree with that. Yeah. The aim is to empower developers so that we are in a state of flow and happy and not facing friction and toil and slow build times. Yeah, yeah but the answer to your question is... It doesn't matter what you do. You're already screwed when they answer, when they ask you that question. Right. You know, that's yeah. Because what they're looking for is how do they cut costs, not how do they make their developers more efficient. Sure. Yeah. They're, they're right. Not. And and we quite often talk about um, the the idea being to increase throughput. So not you're not not going to cut costs. You're going to try and increase throughput. So don't fire your developers. Why don't we just get more out of them? And that will make, if you can produce more, whatever that is, more features or, you know, I don't even know how it works in various things. But <laughs> if, if, if the code that the developers are producing is going to increase revenue, then we should be focusing on that 
not on decreasing headcount. Because as you've already said, like decreasing headcount doesn't make any sense because you're going to decrease costs, sure, but you're also decreasing throughput. And then you're also decreasing your ability to improve that in the future because now everyone hates you. Yeah. Uh, switching gears real quick. Um, there, as we were talking about observability for build systems, I wanted to ask you if you've seen this concept that I saw somebody talking about on Twitter a while back, which was the the concept was, or the question was, why don't we write tests for our build system? Like we write tests for our software uh, to verify that our production mm-hmm. system is going to work. Why don't we write tests to validate that our build system is doing what we expect it to and doing it in the amount of time that we expect it to and so forth? Have you seen seen this idea explored or is anybody doing I, this? Like, I think this is a great idea. And, and it's ringing bells for me because one of the reasons we switched to Gradle a long time ago in one of the places I worked is because because you could separate out the build logic into modules that you could test. I mean, huh. we, we tended not to. And you could do it. We were using Ant before as well. So you could do yeah. it with Ant because you can yeah. kind of like write little Java code and test that. Uh-huh. I mean, it's kind of difficult because sometimes what you want to test is it moves a file from here to here. And like, that's a sort of difficult thing to yeah. unit test, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I would love to test a build system and, and check that it's doing what I think it's doing. And, I think the first thing that that one of the things I like about Dev Velocity, not to pound it too hard, because actually <laughs> sure. like I'm still fairly new to, to Gradle and I'm still kind of in many ways, I'm still trying to get them to sell to me like what is this product and what's it for? <laughs> because like I'm not the kind of advocate who's just going to go out and sell a product. Sure. I really have to believe in it. But one of the things I like about Dev Velocity, and I was using it today in a video, is um well, it's actually not even Devilocity, it's the free build scans. So that's nice. It's free, uh-huh. so anyone can use it. With a build scan, you can see like um visually the the parallelism of your build. So hmm. you can see like it's run five different threads, and this is where the tasks were run. And and I really like that because it's not quite the same as an automated test, but it's at least some kind of feedback view into yeah. what is happening in the build and so i use these build scans to be like okay, i want to tune the build now i want to with this build i was trying to add parallelization add parallelism um add the build cache and then i wanted to also parallelize the individual tests which is a separate thing too uh-huh. and so i can use the build scans and look at them side by side and go obviously i can look at the overall time but i can see are these things run in parallel which things came from the cache versus which comp- compilations needed to happen again and you can even do side by side comparison in terms of like um things like which dependencies did this build use versus this build so yeah i mean that's kind of the first step so you were but- using a tool to give you that information and and maybe some future uh, could allow us to actually write a test to describe, yes, I want my test to run in parallel. This test should validate that my tests were run in parallel. Right. So we have some validation scripts at Gradle. When when we go onto a customer site and set them up with Devilocity for the first time, there's two things we do. One, we set up Devilocity. But the other thing we do is we, we start optimizing their build for them. So they start seeing the improvements of the... Uh, of the acceleration part of Devilocity. And um, and that is scriptable. So you it does things like checks out an individual commit, runs it, checks it out to a different location, runs the build, and then sees if there's any differences and that kind of thing. And then you can you get like pass or fail, you know, these things, the cache worked as expected because when I reran it, I got it from cache, or cache didn't work as expected because I reran it and I had to rerun everything. And so you can automate some of those kinds of things and and use those things to also check for regressions. So yeah. let's say someone goes in in three months' time and decides that they're going to uh, – one of the things that stops the cash from working is things like generated timestamps, that kind mm-hmm. of thing, because yeah. obviously that's like uh, the a newly generated random number or timestamp. It can't – So somebody changes the build. Output. They've added something that has made part of the build uncacheable, and right. build times go up, but you have exactly. no idea why. <laughs> exactly. So if you've got validation scripts and you're running them regularly, it can say this thing is no longer cached. Yeah. So we've only got like four of these scripts. So it's a start. It's a very small start towards it. But yeah, I don't see why not. I don't see why we shouldn't be testing our build, certainly for performance, but also like 
Is it really doing what we think it's doing? Is it yeah. caching stuff when I expect it, it to? Producing the artifacts in the way that we expect them to be produced. Exactly. Is it like doing the right hash codes? I don't even know. Whatever it yeah. is that builds do. Um, yeah. We should be able to check that the build is doing what we think it's doing. Yeah. Yeah. And that'd be fun to explore. Um, cool. Well, that's it's fun talking about builds and productivity and all that. Yeah. I think the thing that I'm most uh, cognizant of from this conversation is the idea that uh, all of that stuff, I mean, it's hard enough for somebody in management to understand what it is that we're doing in the core of it. And then the peripheral ideas of, well, how long does, you know, how long do builds take? What are developer productivity things? That's just too much. Hmm. And so that's why I think we run into these problems where we're looking at it and we're going, those are first class mm. elements. And from somebody who you're trying to explain what it is that we do, the, that's just like extra too much. You know, what, mm. what do we get money from? We get money from the code that we ship. Those other things, those are just expenses. Yeah. Yeah, or yeah. or something. Those are so, those are peripheral. And how do we yeah. make that it's a mindset that how needs do we to shift? Well, and even as developers, for the longest time, we weren't thinking of that. Well, I'll just rerun the compiler, and and there's still places out there that are I, just not using automated builds. I think that's part of the problem. I think as developers, we've got really used to putting up with some crap, like mm -hmm. long build times or flaky tests or a laptop that doesn't do what we want or we just we go from environment to environment and there's always like in whichever office we work in there's something which is just oh this is something we just have to put up with yeah and i yeah. think as developers one of the things we can do to help our productivity is start raising those kinds of things. start looking at things which really slow us down you know what it does drive me crazy that the build is six minutes which to me a six minute build time seems reasonable but six minutes is not enough time to do anything else but it's too long to sit there staring at the build. Yeah. I can start talking about these and these start taking some metrics. These are the things which slow me down. Here's a metric that, that I get a lot with IntelliJ idea. If you change branches, when it re-indexes everything, it takes X amount of time, right? And these are the yeah. sorts of things where we can be like, you know what, I do this three times a day and it takes this amount of time. And what can we do to improve these things so that I don't have to get jolted out of my flow and I yeah. can still be doing that lovely thing of, Oh, I'm just going to fix this problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. That lovely thing. Oh yeah. The, the whole flow thing, which is ultimately psychology. And that's even further outside of the, the realm of what uh, so many people are used to thinking in terms of, but it's essential. Yeah. I tried to do a video about how IntelliJ idea helps us to stay in the flow. I've been trying to do this video for like six years, by the way, <laughs> And it's so hard because I'm like, but but it's just flow. Like it just is. And you can't fake flow in a screencast because you can't explain <laughs> yeah, it yeah. while you're doing it. Because yeah. half right. the time you're staring you at the space state. anyway. <laughs> it might be. One of the things that I've run into recently is um, trying to discover, well, trying to prove why inheritance and, um, and exceptions are problems, why they don't scale, why they don't compose. And I've sort of come to the tentative conclusion that, oh, I'm not going to be able to prove that. Right. And and then, so I need to take a different attack because I, I can't give up solid, you know, because people are using these things and they go, they seem to work. Yeah. And, to, and, and, you, and you're your video may be encountering the same problem. You're, yeah. you're trying to solve it in a way that you can't. And you need I think to you're probably right. How do you know yeah. you're in the flow state? When you're in the flow state, you feel it. Yeah, it's like pornography. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I, I know it when I see it. I know yeah. when I see it. Yeah, right. I know exactly. it when I'm in it. Yeah. The inheritance thing is interesting because I was poking through a code base the other day. I'm trying to parallelize the tests, actually, because the tests take the longest time. And, um, and the tests... We, the tests all inherit from an abstract test, which inherits from an abstract test. And I was like, no, why are you doing this? Like, and this is an experienced programmer who's done this. Like, how do I say, don't do that, apart from just saying, don't do that. But just trust me, it's just not working. 
Yeah. yeah, we were talking about the most important statement in the Gang of Four uh, Design Patterns book, which is prefer composition to inheritance. Right. And it should probably be don't do inheritance. <laughs> Ever. Um, but yeah, and, and it's like, it's the same thing. You can't really, especially because we've had all this background and it worked in small talk and all this kind of stuff. It's just like, why? The problem I, is, is if somebody asks, why shouldn't I do inheritance? Then it's like, oh, yeah. I, I can't explain uh-huh. the why. Uh-huh. <laughs> just don't. Because <laughs> it doesn't scale. It gets nasty when it gets nasty, right? I yeah. mean, then the inheritance yeah. thing, when you're talking about, you know, the duck thing that they do on Head First Java, it, inheritance is kind of fine. But in these tests, these tests, for example, there's like 200 tests, they're integration tests. It has this huge setup and teardown in one abstract method, a different setup and teardown in the other abstract method. <laughs> and this is only really nasty when you're talking about hundreds of tests. Like, you're right. just like, but you have to see that. that is where it doesn't you feel scale. the pain. See, yeah. that's, that's the problem with all of these things, with exceptions, with inheritance and everything. They seem it's great like, at first. It, and it, <laughs> in the small, it's, it looks simple. It looks direct. But then you try and scale it and you go, oh, for some reason, this isn't really working like it did in the small. We talked about this a while back, this idea that um, decision-making through through like quorum or something works great until you get to like five or seven people, and then mm-hmm. you can no longer use that model yes. for decision-making. Yes. It's a lot of parallels. I think to in like, terms of, I think we were talking about in terms of like language design and uh-huh. stuff, you have like three people and everything works really great. You go, well, I'll just make that bigger. And it's like, nope, it doesn't work because of the psychological factors. Right. Yeah. yeah. And we I don't. I would argue, like trying to make decisions at home. So I have a husband and two children. Honestly, more than one person involved in the decision making <laughs> is too difficult, especially when you're talking about like, well, he's working now and then, but I'll be working later. And then he's got a meeting and then the kids have got a thing. And then you don't speak for like three days and it would have been easy just to make the decision there and then. And even if it's wrong, it's just yeah. better. Yeah. Well, that's something. I took a workshop in uh, holacracy from the guy who uh, created this idea. And um, the the thing that mostly I got out of it was w- we front load our decisions with uh, – we, we when we make a decision, we go through all of this work to make sure it's the right decision because um, – if we have to revisit it, we assume we'll have to go through all that work again. And so that this approach is you make the quickest decision that you can that doesn't have any obvious, you know, uh, disproval. And, and then if it doesn't work, then you revisit it and you again make a quick decision rather than trying to presciently know everything about it when you make the decision, which makes it so heavyweight that you never want to revisit it. I think you've just changed my life. Awesome. I think that would make my life a lot easier. <laughs> yes. Uh, as part of that, there's also the concept of like being able to perform kind of experiments that then you can validate. Did yes. I make right. the right decision or yes. something? Yes, little experiments. Yeah, yeah, little experiments. yeah exactly. It's, it's the same. I think it's the same sort of yeah. mindset. Yeah. Yep. Anything else, Tricia? No, I should probably go and check on my children. I have left them being babysat by Minecraft. <laughs> I do that as well. It's a good babysitter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. That was super fun. Thank you for having me. This is really great. All right. Bye.